0: All right. Before we begin, I just wanted to give take a moment to give a shout out and a special thanks to the great Sarah Phoebe Roberts, who did yeoman's work. I might even call it heroic work, and actually pouring through the entire ACP 2019 uh, schedule and program and found three fantastic speakers for us. Did the leg work and actually managed to book them. And you'll hear these episodes coming up. And the episodes are for anaphylaxis, heart failure with the preserved ejection fraction, and heart disease in women. There are three episodes that we are incredibly proud of and could not have done them without her help. So again, big thanks to Sarah for putting these together.
1: And of course, we also have to thank Beth Garbs Garbatelli who did the cover image infographic and helped a lot with the show notes for this one. Justin Burke also put a lot of work into the show notes for this one. So thank you everybody for all your help. It takes a lot of people to keep the show running on a weekly, sometimes twice weekly basis. And we are so grateful to all the hard work that everyone's putting in. Hey guys we're back
0: yeah <laughs> yeah
1: yeah we're we're pretty excited right now because we just had a, a wonderful ep- episode with dr clyde yancey on heart failure with preserved ef and it's it's more it was a pretty mind-blowing episode i don't think that's hyperbole did i use that word correctly paul
0: it's a lot of correct words yes <laughs> strong right to the heart of the matter uh.
1: so paul did you want to tell people what we do on this show
0: Sure. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge, which is certainly the case this time around with the great Dr. Yancey.
1: I guess I should read a bio and we should just get right to it because he um
2: He didn't break the audience or anything.
0: It's I mean it was a super good episode and let me we'll give a little bit of background. On this episode, we cover the evaluation and management of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is a challenging diagnosis, and the terminology itself is often challenging, which we talk a little bit about, and also the fact we're kind of practicing in what has historically felt like an evidence-free zone, but it's starting to feel like we're actually starting to build up a treatment armamentarium that is hugely exciting. So I'm, I'm excited to get into it. Um, and we have about as big an expert as we could ask for to help us with this problem, and Matt's going to tell us all about him.
1: Dr. Clyde Yancey, MD, MSC, is chief Cardiology, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and Associate Director, the Bloom Cardiovascular Institute at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. He was formerly the Medical Director at Baylor Heart and Vascular Institute and Chief of Cardiothoracic Transplantation at Baylor University Medical Center. He co-chairs the Coalition to Reduce Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Cardiovascular Outcomes, sponsored by the American College of Cardiology. He has served as president of the American Heart Association and on the executive council of the Heart Failure Society of America. He is a member of the ACC Guideline Task Force, which oversees the ACC AHA guidelines. His research interests include the emerging role of registries in cardiovascular diseases, management of advanced heart failure with new drugs and devices, and heart failure in special populations. He received his BS from Southern University, an MD from Tulane University School of Medicine, and an MSc from the University of Texas at Dallas. I think we've already done a good enough job uh, pumping everyone up for this episode, so please enjoy this wonderful conversation.
2: That's right, Matt. This episode is
0: sure to give you a high heart score.
1: <laughs> All right. I Yeah. Okay.
0: Golf clap. <laughs> I mean, I'm just proud of you for making it through the bio. That was strong work, buddy. <laughs>
1: All right, so let's get to it. Clyde, thank you so much for joining us. We are really excited about this topic because I it's a little bit uh, confused in my head right now. The first thing we're going to do, though, is just ask you a couple questions, and then we'll ease into the heart the heart failure preserved ejection fraction stuff. So can you tell us a one-liner and tell the audience something about yourself outside the world of medicine?
3: So I'll give you two sentences. My day job is i um, chief of cardiology at Northwest University, Feinberg School of Medicine, but my real passion is living in Chicago. And so, accommodating the weather, um, really enjoying some of the best restaurants on the planet, having an active lifestyle enabled by the third coast, Lake Michigan, and being able to gauge in all of the pursuits that um, bring me that bit of wellness that we all talk about, whether it's jazz or culture, arts, and. Oh my goodness! Sports, not much about the Cubs right now, even though I'm a Cub fan. But we've got it all, and so yeah, my day job is great. It's it's empowering. It's it's important. But my life in Chicago is is what's really
0: cool. We're always looking for free mentoring advice, um, so I, I think that the best advice question I'm going to take for a change of pace and ask you: What's the best advice that you have received? Um, why don't we say in your role as an educator?
3: So I really think, um, one has to learn how to put filters on your information, information sources. You hear inputs from all over, particularly in today's world. And the challenge, the real challenge for the early career professional, academic or practice is how do you manage so many data inputs? I would argue that if you can put boundaries and use principally a given source, Maybe it's the JAMA network. Maybe it's the ACP resources. In my world, maybe it's the American College of Cardiology resources. But if you can put boundaries and say, this is going to be my flow of information, and I will rely on this flow of information, I think in today's world, most purveyors of information understand the necessity to be comprehensive, to be expansive, but also to find a way to be very straightforward. Um, I would not want anyone beginning their career to go through a real fretful, fret, fretful, frustrating pursuit trying to listen and read and be a part of everything. Put boundaries on it. Use one reliable, reliable source as your go-to information source. The reason I start with that as my advice is that I'll get to what I was taught early in my career, if you are a physician and your commitment is to practice medicine incredibly well, you must read every day. Even prior to our meeting today, early this morning, I was up reading. You must read every day.
0: I think, Matt, correct me if I'm paraphrasing wrong. I think Kaprit Dollywall kind of gave some more advice. There's just so much out there that you can't, you're not going to read every single primary article, so instead find ways to, to funnel the really relevant stuff to right. yourself. So right. that's that's fantastic advice. And in
3: your space, I mean, what, there's podcasts all over the place. I mean, I, I record several podcasts a month um, and make those publicly available. Um, there are any sort of digest in the kind of generic sense that capture information Um, I subscribe to several online resources. So having a way that keeps you up to speed, I've discovered, quite frankly, that um, Twitter has been very influential. Every morning I get up at 4.45 and I spend the first five to ten minutes of the day just looking at what are the topical issues in my Twitter feed. It's amazing how much awareness, not knowledge, but awareness I have of what's going on. Maybe it's 15 minutes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I try not to look at the screen time report anymore. It just... <laughs> so, we're going to start as per usual with a case from uh, Cash Slack Memorial. So, we're going to talk. This is one of my least inventive names. I apologize in advance. This is Ms. Diana Stalick. She is a 64 year old female. I, I know. I am could not be more filled with shame. This feels Where's like a steward. I have.
1: Did Stuart incept that thought I, in your mind? I, <laughs> I, Diana Stalick.
2: Oh, when I found my. out that Paul's the one who wrote the script, I
0: nearly had a stroke. I, listen. Yeah. I'm not proud. I must have been in a bad, dark place. But in any case, Ms. Dalek is here. She's 64 years old. She has a history of high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes. She's obese, has OSA. Coming to your clinic is a new patient. She's had a recent hospitalization for, quote, heart failure, um, where it appears she was diuresed and started on a number of medications. She has a kind of nebulous discharge summary, as is often the case. According to this discharge summary, she had a, again, quote, normal ejection fraction, but had evidence of grade two diastolic dysfunction. So this is a not uncommon scenario, at least in, in my primary care office. But before we even get rolling, if we could start with some basic definitions. So this is uh, you know our episode about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. This patient has diastolic dysfunction. I feel like the terminology often gets very confusing and sometimes they're equated, but sometimes they mean different things. Could you just start very basically with us and sort of talk us through what HEFPEF is versus diastolic dysfunction and, and what those things mean specifically to you as a as a cardiologist
3: so Paul yes Paul uh, let me give you the first big tip let's disarticulate diastolic dysfunction from any discussion about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction diastolic dysfunction describes a physiologic parameter that is determined in a non-invasive lab or in a catheterization lab using very sophisticated methodologies and it infers certain hemodynamic consequences and is associated not just with heart failure, but ischemic disease, arrhythmias, et cetera, particularly valvular heart disease as well. So let's be very clear and say the important thing here is, was there a clinical syndrome of heart failure characterized by shortness of breath an elevation in natriuretic peptides a requirement for inpatient hospitalization with a need for decongestion. If all of those requirements are met, then the important conversation is about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And quite frankly, I think we have enabled the community because we've said, look, take the clinical syndrome of heart failure, not a mystery to any reasonable clinician, and understand that the measurement of the ejection fraction is your first discrimination point. It's the first branch in the tree. And as I've told audiences for many years, I've been thinking about practicing, studying heart failure for over 30 years now. I still can't guess the ejection fraction at the bedside. I still can't do it. Take home message, take a picture. So if you just keep those things in mind, take a picture, get the number, discriminate low ejection fraction from preserved ejection fraction now we can have a relevant clinical conversation.
1: This may be a, a whole can of worms, but the whole borderline 40 to 50% ejection fraction, how are we gonna get into this? But how how do you think about that kind of gray area? So Matt, you really
3: have just brought up um, what I think is a critical issue that might in fact reflect a pivot in the whole field of heart failure. Because there is a phenomenon of a clinical syndrome of heart failure where the ejection fraction is greater than 40 but less than 50. It's not just a bleary-eyed echocardiographer who can't resolve what the ejection fraction is. Where it is very relevant is in that patient that previously had a very low ejection fraction and after exposure to medical therapy has improved, and the ejection fraction is arguably between 40 and 50. That's one phenotype. Mm -hmm. There's the other phenotype where the patient has had heart failure with observed ejection fraction for an indefinite period of time, and now the ventricle is beginning to remodel, and we're seeing weakening of the ventricle. That's another phenotype Mm -hmm. with certain therapeutic and prognostic implications. Mm -hmm. And then there's that patient who just shows up, with an ejection fraction between 40 and 50 that worries us because we don't know directionally is that someone recovering from or someone who is becoming something else. So let me tell you the part about this that is most intriguing. For, for all of you, imagine what it means that someone that had a very low ejection fraction, when exposed to all the right therapies, the, the ejection fraction gets better. The ventricular function seems to improve mm-hmm. imagine if you could biologically manipulate that process and every patient who showed up with an injection fraction of 18 or 13 or 21 you could effectuate changes in medical therapy lifestyle etc that will result in an injection fraction greater than 40 understand the prognostic implication of having an ejection fraction over 40 versus under 40, Mm -hmm. a substantial gain in longevity, and probably quality of life as well. And so, yeah, it just seems like we are parsing classification criteria by throwing vernacular at this group between 40 and 50, but the science there is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And many of us are really thinking carefully about what does it mean Is it manipulable? And I'll just give you one more insight. What I would suggest that we start to do, Paul, instead of paying such close attention to the diastolic parameters on the echo report, I do that. That's what we're supposed to do. Search for and pay attention to global longitudinal strain. That is a parameter of ventricular function that is less load dependent and is more associated with the integrity of the myocardium. What it means is this. The ejection fraction is globally how much blood is emitted with each contraction of the ventricle compared to how much is in the ventricle before contraction, stroke volume over end diastolic volume. Strain measures the deformation of the myocardium during systole. That's less load dependent and is more reflective of intrinsic ventricular function contractility, if you will. So at low ejection fraction with strain that is still relatively preserved, that ventricle may get better, maybe gets lots better. But a low EF and a low strain, it's not a good combination.
1: Is this a good time to, you think, talk about the pathophysiology of heart of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? Because I had always been taught, yeah, it's just people that have uh, chronic hypertension and then the ventricle gets stiff and they get heart failure preserved EF. And Chris, stop we should- Stop that. Okay, yeah, stop <laughs> just, that. Just stop that. Okay. Oh, gosh.
3: In 2019, let's no longer promulgate that message. Okay. So we know, we know that- Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is an amalgam of a number of different phenotypes. Mm -hmm. And there are some very sophisticated ways of phenotyping the condition that our center and others have pioneered. But in large measure, we've used agnostic machine learning to understand what clusters of clinical parameters exist. And do they infer a certain prognosis and do they define a certain phenotype? And the answer is yes. Regardless of the nomenclature, most of us know this. There is a cardiometabolic profile in hef typically the obese, diabetic patient, usually with some degree of renal insufficiency. Many of us think that's a volume redistribution problem, and that's the reason for the dyspnea. And we take care, that we don't overdiurese that patient. That may be the group where the SGLT2 inhibitors might be uniquely impactful. We know that there's another phenotype that is characterized by a disproportionate increase in pulmonary artery pressures. So if you will, pulmonary hypertension associated with heart failure, EF being preserved. Perhaps that's going to be more responsive to a natriuretic peptide or some antifibrotic approach like a mineralocorticoid antagonist. And then we know for certain there's a cardiorenal piece. And that necessarily means we have to think about how do we optimize renal function. So it's interesting that we're coming forward with these several different versions of HEFPEF that are very important. The reason I give you pause about hypertension, that was the more simplistic pathway. We thought that hypertensives developed left ventricular hypertrophy, developed stiff ventricles, and that was their heart failure. Now we understand that hypertension actually leads to reduced ejection fraction heart failure as often as it leads to preserved ejection fraction heart failure, and the most important thing is that the development of left ventricle hypertrophy is not a necessary consequence of hypertension. That's the pathologic consequence of hypertension. It's probably driven in part by a genetic predilection towards developing hypertrophy ventricle. So now what does all this mean for the internist? What all this means for the intern is some simple measures. Start with the clinical syndrome of heart failure. Determine the ejection fraction. If it's reduced EF heart failure, hold another conversation. If it's preserved ejection fraction heart failure, think about the fact that there are many different types of clinical presentations that go with that. Understand that it's important to look at the comorbidities. Those are the areas where we have already well-described therapies for diabetes, atrial fibrillation, hypertension, et cetera. Try not to think only about hypertension. Try to think globally about the burden of cardiovascular disease. The,
1: the talk of, Paul was referencing this in pre-recording, the talk of this being part of an inflammatory condition uh, or inflammatory process, do, can, you, can you speak to that at all?
3: So this is the conversation that I think is very, very relevant. Because especially if we think about this cardiometabolic syndrome, but even beyond that, we're beginning to understand that part of what may be amiss in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is a deficiency of nitric oxide and an impairment in nitric oxide signaling that may be driven by an upregulated inflammatory stimulus, perhaps from obesity. The trio of hypertension, obesity, and diabetes is unbelievably powerful as a predecessor to the development of heart failure. 45-year-old person with obesity, hypertension, and diabetes, within 15 years, the risk of developing heart failure is four or five times that of someone who doesn't have those risk factors. A person who's 45 years old doesn't have those risk factors likely another 45 years before heart failure becomes an evident concern those three variables together are just that powerful and it may be the commonality here is an inflammatory signal that downregulates cyclic gmp signaling reduces the availability of nitric oxide and leads to this vascular compartment stiffness this increased production of reactive oxygen species and why that's important is that that is probably a profibrotic signal. So to the extent that stiffness and renal insufficiency and abnormal compliance are associated with the clinical syndromes of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, there are probably mechanisms, mechanisms that we're elucidating that take us from what you and I see in the office, the obese diabetic hypertensive patient, to the patient in the hospital with a clinical syndrome of heart failure. And I think that's just fascinating.
2: So I, I just want to ask about the morbidity associated with HEF-REF versus HEF-PEF. So the overall five-year mortality or five-year survival, if we want to look at it optimistically, it's about the same for HEF-PEF versus HEF-REF. Is there any difference in the actual mor- morbidity or symptom uh, severity?
3: Most of the information that references the poor outcomes in heart failure and the similarity between HEF-PEF and HEF-REF reflects Dated perspectives, accurate when the information was brought forward, but no longer relevant. Still very challenging to treat. Don't believe that I'm trying to suggest that there's been a revolution in outcomes, but there has been improvement. We know this. The most recent data inform us that in those persons under the age of 60, free of comorbidities, who are being treated for heart failure, with candidate therapy from the RAS inhibition category, the beta-blocker category, and the metabolic corticoride receptor antagonist category, five-year survivals are at least 82%, 18% risk of death. That's dramatically better than the 50% number that is replicated over and over and over again in every published domain. We know that best-case scenarios now on evidence-based therapies for heart failure, ambulatory heart failure, annual risk of death is down to 5% or less. So it is quite conceivable that we're entering an era, particularly if we enable patients with exposures to ideal therapies, where outcomes for hef will be better. Outcomes for hef are very fascinating because they are not driven uniquely by things like pump failure and sudden cardiac death. Rather, it's total cardiovascular morbidity mortality, including sudden death, coronary events, as leading causes of death in that scenario. There's already some elegant data to demonstrate that the concomitant presence of important coronary disease and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is much higher than we thought. So um, the question is quite appropriate. The answers segregate according to the etiology of death. But the takeaway message is that theoretically survival in the setting of half-ref is better and perhaps much better than it's ever been before. Morbidity is an interesting question. If we are able to modify hospitalization, which is the prototypical way of determining morbidity, um, We are prone to think that for HEF-REF, we see improvement because so many of the therapies that are available, many practitioners forget, were deemed effective because there was a reduction in the hospitalization burden. And we don't have the same sort of um, construct for HEF-PEF. The other thing that's troublesome is that since we don't have really evidence based effective therapies for HEF PEF yet, characteristically we see recurrent need for hospitalization in those patients as well. So I would argue that the morbidity is actually more worrisome for HEF PEF, but the mortality is trending towards and theoretically should be significantly better for HEF REF. So let's.
0: Go back to the patient if that's okay. So we, we have Miss Stolic with us, and I I still so can, is
3: her sister Systolic.
0: I oh oh! <laughs> uh, don't feed into this, Anthony. This is <laughs> I like him. <them. laughs> so let's let's give her three pillow orthopnea. Um, she says she uses two pillows at baseline. She is having some dyspnea on exertion after walking less than half a block on a level surface. She thinks maybe her ankles are puffy, or it's hard telling sometimes. She's not having chest pain, maybe occasional palpitations. We do the best med rec we can. It looks like, at least according to this not-great discharge summary, she's on 40 milligrams of furosemide daily, 25 milligrams of metoprolol tartrate twice daily, lisinopril 20 milligrams daily. She's on some metformin, a baby aspirin, and 40 milligrams of a atorvastatin. So with this patient who's coming to you sort of for post-discharge follow-up with this diagnosis now of HEFPEF that we feel pretty good about, is there any other history that is particularly important? And then when you're doing your exam, uh, similarly, what things are really particularly high yield for you?
3: Yeah, So from the history, I'd like to know a lot more about her diabetes, because if she is appropriately exposed to comprehensive disease management, diet, lifestyle in particular, and um, is suitably treated with metformin, understanding where hemoglobin A1C is. Um, I'd have a very low threshold to engage with the primary care physician or the endocrinologist and have a meaningful discussion about initiating the treatment with a sodium glucose transport inhibitor, SGLT2 inhibitor, set that aside. From a clinical syndrome, I'd really like to more, know more about her functional capacity. I'd like to know more about concomitant other illnesses, is atrial fibrillation a concern? Believe it or not, I'd like to know more about obesity. That is to say, can we get her in a lifestyle program? Some fascinating work done by the group at the University of Michigan. That demonstrates that if we can effectuate even a modest weight loss, we can fundamentally change ventricular compliance. We can reduce hospitalizations, help people do and feel a lot better. So I'd be pretty excited to see this patient. I would really want to get full in on lifestyle adjustment. I want to really engage with uh, the endocrinologist and think about making her anti-diabetic therapy more cardiac friendly if there is such a concept um i don't know that there's a lot that we can do with the cardiovascular meds. the statin therapy should be separately and independently indicated for all the right reasons um the beta blocker, i'd have to think carefully about that not necessarily indicated for HEP. clearly that's not the case um the ACE inhibitor maybe should be an ARB. We have a small signal of benefit on ARBs, not on ACE inhibitors. Um, if we're treating hypertension, that's all well and good. But I'd have a very low threshold to give this patient spironolactone or plurinone. and So I think there are things that could be done. I'd also like to suggest one other thing. If this <laughs> Diane Stalic, <laughs>
0: Listen, I know, I know. I um, know. <laughs>
3: had a pattern of recurrent hospitalizations. This may be someone in whom implantation of a pulmonary monitor might be a good idea. Um, These are very small titanium loop devices that are permanently implanted in the pulmonary artery at virtually zero risk after um, doing the right heart cath that then communicate with a central repository via Bluetooth from home. And it allows us to electronically capture the PA diastolic pressure over time and can then better calibrate diuretic therapy particularly to help mitigate future episodes of decompensated heart failure. And getting back to the point about morbidity, nobody likes to be in a hospital. So the idea would be to anticipate the hospitalization and make changes at a time. So it's interesting to me because people bemoan and, and 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 agonize over, we don't have a therapy for HEF-PEF. Well, but we can still take care of patients because we're doctors. Hello, <laughs> right. we're doctors. And so that's what we can do.
1: You, you mentioned earlier about not wanting to dry the patients out too much. And is there a difference in the way we should think about how aggressive we can be with diuretics when we're treating HEF-REF versus HEF-PEF? So terrific, terrific question, Matt. Um For HEF-PEF,
3: we have to understand that when the injection fraction is preserved, that also means the ventricular volumes are preserved. So that means that the pressure-volume relationships are going to be very different, meaning that for any unit change in volume, because the ventricle is still normal in size, there's going to be a larger delta on pressure. And so when that's the case... We're talking about significantly compromising renal blood flow if we overdiarrheize. So, for neither syndrome, do we have any evidence that diuretics change the natural history? They're intended to relieve symptoms. And for both syndromes, we understand that symptom relief is really the barometer that we should use for the administration of diuretic therapy. Again, in our practices, we typically rely on natriuretic peptides to inform that decision a bit more in part because I take care of a very large heart failure population. So looking at some directional movement in natriuretic peptides is helpful. Not advocating serial testing, but saying that's a way to improve your comfort about diuretic management. Now, different conversation for HefRef. You are internist, and you know that um, you... Often face a patient who comes in with decompensated heart failure. You actually become the practitioner, not me. They actually come to you. Here's a takeaway message a very important pearl. Patient comes to you, decompensated heart failure, already on a loop diuretic. Add the daily dose, double it, and then give that dose as your either twice a day or three times a day loop diuretic dose. So someone decompensated on daily dose of 60 milligrams of furosemide, double it, make it 120, and particularly for the first 48 to 72 hours, 120 furosemide, BID or TID.
1: Intravenous? Intravenous. Okay, so that's a huge step up, because you're talking 60 PO to 120 IV. The
3: mistake that's made time and time again is that for the patient with half-ref, who's admitted with decomposited heart failure, we don't augment diuresis nearly enough And what concerns us is that there is this real question that decompensation is not just becoming congested. It's the release of a number of pro-inflammatory, pro-growth, pro-apoptotic signals that remain excited until we can, this is my own word, right, correct the stimulus for that release, which typically is a congestion. And if it takes too long, we think, that time spent exposed to these adverse stimuli is part of the reason that the natural history after hospitalization is so precarious. Because remember, the patients didn't just start decompensating that morning because they had a sandwich, Mm -hmm. that classic history. The decompensation started days to weeks prior. Mm -hmm. It just reached a critical threshold. Well, now they present with the symptoms, you know the salty sandwich or the bag of chips may have thrown them over, but that didn't start it. It started before that.
1: This is a trial. This is a trial based, or is this ev- is this expert opinion? The audience likes when we no, no, the,
3: the, no, no, no. I'm glad you brought that up. So the National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute Heart Failure Clinical Trials Network rigorously tested diuretic therapy and resolve this algorithm which has now been inculcated in most treatment strategies and importantly as the background therapy for most acute treatment regimens. So the standard of care based on evidence is this connotation of tally the daily exposure to oral diuretic, double it, and then administer that BID or TID. That same algorithm, by the way, prompts use metolazone. Um, I'm reluctant to do that frequently in my practice for lots of what I think are appropriate reasons, but the takeaway message cannot be stated more plainly. Frequently, we fail to sufficiently provide diabetic therapy, especially in the first two to three days. I love it.
1: Thank you.
0: Before We've touched on a lot of good treatment principles, I think, but before we get more into that, I did want to touch initially on the workup of, say, this relatively new patient to you and what... Is there a role for ischemic workup right out the gate? And where, where should we go from here for this patient after we get them kind of optimized from a volume standpoint?
3: So terrific question. And Paul, I'll tell you, if you don't already know the status of the coronary tree, that just needs to be clearly established. Um, based on age alone, the pretest likelihood of disease is significant. And if other risk factors are present, this was a diabetic patient, diastolic. This is a patient already in statin therapy with some history of dyslipidemia. My, you've got three risk factors coming together, hypertension, diabetes, and known atherosclerotic disease now with heart failure. I would insist that in that case, we should know something about the coronary anatomy. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean going to the cath lab and giving dye and running the risk for the renal insufficiency. Increasingly, we're making use of coronary CT studies because if we want a binary answer, yes, no, is there coronary disease? The coronary CT, if you've got a very skilled lab, really gives you quite good information and helps at least articulate which way you should go. If you see that there's significant disease, then angiography is indicated. Um, Perfusion imaging studies are good, but there's so many caveats about those tests, so many opportunities for a false positive test, so many issues for women, so many issues for people with conduction system disturbances. So big fan of non-invasive testing for ischemia. But sometimes you need to know just yes, no. Is there disease present? So um, let me reframe the question and say, is there any utility for right heart catheterization and heart failure with observed ejection fraction? The answer is yes, surprisingly, and a strong yes. But here is a scenario for the patient who has exercise-induced symptoms consistent with heart failure but is seemingly comfortable at rest, we will frequently resort to a right heart cath with exercise in the cath lab. So this is a tertiary care referral. But that is not infrequently the patient who has exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension that then gives us much more precision and assigning the symptoms to a pathophysiology. But other than that, the right heart cath is is really uniquely helpful in patients that have reduced EF heart failure that are not responding in a prototypical fashion. But for any patient in whom there is a diagnostic dilemma, um, our approach is to resort to diagnostic right heart catheterization pretty quickly so that we're not missing occult valve, heart disease, restrictive physiologies, things that might continually complicate treatment. So you guys didn't ask me a question that I want to answer. So we're really struggling with HefPef, and you might want to say, so is there any hope in the future that this is going to be different? And we can talk about drugs in a minute, but let's talk about some different things. So there is this really novel technology that allows us to use echocardiography to image the left anterior descending vessel and the intact chest. And we can then take our echo images and we can test for flow-mediated dysfunction, endothelial dysfunction. And we've begun to identify that the hef syndrome is uniquely associated with endothelial flow-mediated dysfunction in a way that really informs exactly the kind of scenario you see with dyspnea, with need for hospitalization, pulmonary hypertension, et cetera. So it's a very novel, we think, useful future diagnostic strategy. So kind of blending both things, the right heart cath, the left heart cath, the idea that we can non-invasively image the LED, look at flow characteristics and say, that's the patient that's at risk for complications of HEFPEF, and then we can better refine our therapies and target that patient. The second thing that's on the horizon, which is pretty fascinating, this may seem uh, counterintuitive, um, and it certainly is disruptive, but there's ongoing work, now at the phase three level, of creating LA to RA shunts, and doing so, uniquely in patients with pulmonary hypertension, complicating HFPEF. So using an interatrial shunt to decompress the left atrial hypertension, which is a sine qua non of heart failure. That's what causes dyspnea. So decompressing left atrial hypertension without causing any evident harm by introducing the inatrial shunt. So it is de facto an ASD but with shunt ratios that are much less than two to one, but enough to decompress the pressures. And the early evidence now has consistently shown an improvement in functional capacity and a reduction in symptoms.
0: And how far out has this been looked at so far?
3: Out to a year. Wow. And these are published data and the phase three trials are going forward. There also is work being done with the inatrial shunt in all variations of heart failure. Because for the older patient with heart failure where the symptom is just dyspnea that is not able to be relieved by any other strategy, the idea of using the heart's own hemodynamics to relieve the left atrial hypertension is a pretty fascinating concept.
2: So it looks like an ongoing trial that currently has uh, 739 days published shows a 33% lower rate of death for the patients that had an intraatrial shunt placed.
3: Yeah. And be careful with the death parameter because I know this work intimately, not powered for death, but powered for morbidity or composite. But suffice it to say that the composite is going in a good direction and I would argue that within several years, if the phase two trials are positive, this conversation will be not only about the risk factors of diabetes, hypertension, and obesity, not only about medical treatments, the moreno-corticoid antagonists, and maybe the RNA compound, but will be about the device therapies, putting in the pulmonary catheter, anticipating decongestion, imaging the LED, understanding which patient needs the more aggressive therapy, and placement of an inatrial shunt. This is what the future is going to hold, and this is not the future over the long horizon. This is near-term stuff.
0: Wow, <laughs>
1: that is incredible. My my mind is blown. This this is this is uh, you're over delivering. That's just uh, I I am and I'm not just blowing smoke.
0: So I think the useful thing to talk about now would be sort of what are the evidence-based treatments that we have available to us right this very second. So what what can we do to sort of help with these patients, and what medications have the evidence behind them?
3: So, Paul, if we're th- still thinking about Diane Stalik, um, she is just trying to uh, hurt me now. She she is the patient that all of us see on a regular basis. We all know this prototypical patient, and we all agonize over this patient. and We can talk about all the theoretical things. We can talk about what got this patient to this point. We can emphasize the need to know about the coronary anatomy, but ultimately, we have to treat the patient, and that's medical treatment for the majority of these patients. Diuretics are important, sufficient to relieve dyspnea. There's a slight signal in those who have elevated natriuretic peptides to expose patients to a mineralocorticoid antagonist, spironolactone being the one that was studied. But the real enthusiasm, the real energy, the anticipation is that the RNA compound, the combination of Secubitrol-Valsartan, may prove to be beneficial based on the results of the now-completed Paragon HF trial, those results will be released in August 2019 at the latest, November 2019. But if those results inform a treatment strategy that focuses on symptomatic patients with heart failure with observed rejection fraction, we will see a new day in heart failure therapy because we'll be able to ameliorate at least the, the symptom burden and uh, we'll wait to see if we can ameliorate outcomes like rehospitalization and particularly cardiovascular mortality. It's reasonable to be anticipatory. It's also reasonable to be skeptical. Given the number of different types and phenotypes of HFPAF and the competing other causes in HEFPEF causes of death, that is cardiovascular mortality independent of heart failure, My own view is finding a mortality signal will be challenging, but finding a morbidity signal may be very plausible. And to the extent that we can help patients live a better life free of symptoms and with a lesser need for hospitalization, that will be a very good day. So um, from the time of this recording, we're within, within months of having that information. And as everybody's want to say, we'll know when we know. But there are some theoretical reasons actually why the RNA compound might work better for HEF PEF than HFRF REF in laboratory animals that have induced heart failure. Remarkably, the secupitrol component of the RNA compound strikingly regresses evidence of fibrosis and improves ventricular compliance. And when partnered with RAS inhibition, there's a remarkable benefit on a regression in hypertrophy, along with the reduction of fibrosis. So you think about what that might mean clinically, that we can institute a regimen, the mineralocorticoid antagonist, the diuretic, the SGLT2 inhibitor, and maybe the RNA compound now, that targets the biology, the biology of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Every single time we've been successful in medicine with medical therapy, every single time, it was when we targeted not the symptoms, but the biology, antimicrobial therapy, chemotherapy, ischemic heart disease, PCI. When we target the biology, patients get better. When we target chest pain, target fever, target dyspnea, we get nowhere, but it's a targeting of the biology. And that's what fascinates me. I mean, that's why I've made a lifelong commitment to academic medicine, because I want to know why and we're getting very close now to knowing why outcomes in health were are not good and having an answer to what we can do about that why.
0: Can I ask actually real quick about one more medication? You mentioned the SGLT2s a couple of times, um, which I, I think... Now they talk about them for uh, certainly indicated for diabetics with ASCVD, but for Heppef specifically, I don't think I knew so much about that. What's
3: so the data being acquired? There is an independent, remarkable study being done right now in non diabetics, non diabetics who are randomized to either the SGLT2 inhibitor or placebo. You can only imagine what kind of eruption will happen if that's a positive trial, because it will very clearly suggest. In almost a contrarian way, that the SGLT2 inhibitors actually are cardiovascular drugs that have an off target effect on blood sugar. Oh, that's great. And not diabetic drugs that have an off target effect on cardiovascular disease. (laughs) Now, that's my
0: wow moment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks much. Oh, my gosh. So amazing. If you want to just
0: pull the mic out and then drop it, that's fine too. We'll, We'll be okay with it. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right,
2: Paul. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbertelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chu Manchu on Facebook. And also our producer for this show, the one and only Paul Nelson-Williams. Until next time, I've
1: been Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado.
0: <laughs> and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thanks. Goodbye.
3: So, Jeff? Matt. Matt. I can be Jeff.
1: (laughs) You (laughs) scare me. It's a lot of names. (laughs) You really scare me.